Amen. So my Easter present for you today is uh, six pages of notes, if you, if you hadn't noticed yet. There you go. Reason to dance. But I'm thinking I can get them done in 45 minutes. So six notes faster than I normally do three. And so I'm just going to jump in. I want to talk about uh, the three days that changed the world forever. And I didn't feel like I could talk about the resurrection if I didn't first lay the foundation for what led up to the resurrection. And um, <clears throat> so I'm just going to tell a story today. The story is in your Bible. But instead of going through and picking out every scripture, um, there are scriptures in the notes. I'm just going to tell the story, and uh, you can follow along. And so uh, it is Passover. Uh, A.D. 33, Herod Tiberius uh, is ruling over the region that encompasses where Jesus and the disciples are. And as far as he's concerned and everybody else in Rome and Israel is concerned, um, it's another normal day. Uh, babies will be born. Uh, there will be people will go to work. People will get married. Uh, kids are going to play. And people are going to die. Um, but there's one death today that's going to be the most brutal, gruesome death, uh, the best and the worst of all human deaths. And it's going to be a death that will change history. And uh, so in Jerusalem, God the Son, the creator of everything, uh, is going to be executed. So how does this day begin? It actually begins now for Israel. The day begins at sundown. We think the day begins at sunrise. For Israel, the day begins at sundown. So it's sundown at Passover, and Jesus has gathered his 12 closest associates. There's a number of people who follow him, but the 12. He's gathered them together, and in Luke chapter 22, he tells them, I've been looking forward to this day to celebrate this meal with you. And it says, as they sat around the table, he took the cup and he passed it to them. And he said, I want you to divide this among yourselves. So the picture I got was a large chalice of wine. And he passed it and each one poured a portion into their own cups. And uh, then he breaks the bread and it says he blesses the bread. And it says, after they finished the meal... When he, when he broke the bread, he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. He says, I'm going to suffer now, and I'll never partake of this bread again until the kingdom of God comes. Then they eat their meal, and then he lifts up the cup of wine, and he says, this cup um, is my blood that is shed, and I will not drink of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Now, for the disciples, here's how, here's how I picture this. Um, if, if you study the life of the disciples, they were just a bunch of, my favorite word, knuckleheads. I mean, they were not the brightest lights on the tree. Um, but they knew Jewish custom. They knew Jewish law. They knew the Passover. And they had done two previous Passover meals with Jesus. And so I'm kind of picturing them going, whoa, 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 Jesus. Um, no, no, the bread is, is the bread of haste, no leavening to bake. We're leaving Egypt, and the cup is, is, the, is the blood of the lamb over, the, over the, the, or the door so the death angel passes over it. Jesus, what, you've got it all wrong. I kind of picture it, um, the movie The Fiddler on the Roof. If you haven't seen it, you need to. But the great scene where Tevye comes up with the idea to have a dream to tell Golda that 
uh, their daughter's idol is going to marry the tailor and not the butcher. And so he wakes up and says, I had a nightmare. And Golda goes, well, tell me the dream. I'll tell you what it means. And he sings this song and it says, your, your, your grandmother's idol came and said that our daughter's idol is to marry the tailor. Motel comes, butcher, laser wolf. And I kind of picture that kind of sing song back and forth between Jesus and the disciples. No, 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 Jesus, it's not your body. It's not your blood. It's the, it's, it's the bread of haste. It's the blood of the lamb because they don't get it. They, they really don't get it. And then Jesus makes this profound statement. After he said all that, after he's kind of rocked their world, this, he says this, this sentence, behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And some other things about this story, interesting. Everybody didn't go, Judas, you know. <laughs> it says they all said, is it me? Am I going to betray you? They had no idea it was Judas. So it's kind of like a bomb just went off in the room. Jesus has changed the Passover meal, and now he says one of them around the table is going to betray him. And at that moment, Judas stands up and walks out of the room. And so it's interesting to me that when Jesus came into the room with the 12, he already knew who Judas was. He already knew what Judas was going to do, and yet Judas still ate with him. When they came into the room, Jesus washed everybody's feet, including Judas's feet. When he prayed, he prayed for everybody, including Judas. And when he passed the bread and he passed the cup, he included Judas in all of that. And, and really, this, to me, is the epitome of the expression of love, to feed the mouth that sold you out, to wash the feet of a traitor, and to forgive the one who's about to betray you. And so the 11 in disbelief, according to the Bible, it's kind of like, okay, that shock's over. Let's go back to normal. Jesus says, come on, let's go to the garden. Let's go to the Gethsemane. Let's go pray. Now, I think this was normal. And here's why I think it was normal. Because Judas knows where they are. Jesus didn't say, let's go pray while Judas was in the room. So Judas kind of knew Jesus' routine. After they do Passover meal together, they go and pray together. So Jesus says, come with me to the garden. They get to the garden of Gethsemane, and, and they sit down. Jesus brings the, the, the core leadership with him and says, guys, I want you to pray with me. And he begins to pray. And in, in this prayer, the writer of Hebrews says this about the prayer that Jesus prays. He said, Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So Jesus is praying, and while he's praying, his disciples, this is one of the things that shows me that as far as they're concerned, there's nothing to worry about right now because they've fallen asleep. They're asleep. Jesus is praying, and they don't realize while Jesus is praying, while they're in the comfort of their sleep, Jesus is literally sweating drops of blood. And he's sweating drops of blood not because he knows he's about to be crucified, not because he knows he's about to suffer a physical death. 
He's seen physical death. He's seated at the right hand of the Father from all eternity past. He saw Abraham die. He saw Moses die. He saw David die. He saw an entire generation die in the wilderness. He knows what physical death is about. The burden he's carrying is that there's going to come a moment when the wrath of God is going to be displayed for the first time and all of God's wrath is going to be placed upon him because of your sin and my sin. And in the placement of that wrath, Jesus knows there's going to come a moment where eternal fellowship is going to be broken. God the Father is going to turn his back on God the Son because of your sin and my sin. And Jesus is overwhelmed with this. And while he is there praying, his disciples are sleeping and drops of blood are coming from his brow. He hears a noise coming, feet walking toward him. He looks up, there's torches, there's whispers. He stands up, guys, guys, wake up. The guys wake up and they look and these soldiers and the, 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 the torches are there and here comes Judas out of the midst of these, these temple guards and he walks up and he gives Jesus a kiss. Chaos ensues. The disciples are scared. They don't, except for one guy who is the knucklehead of all knuckleheads, and that's Peter. Underneath Peter's cloak, he has a sword or some semblance of a sword. And while all this chaos is taking place, while the guards, and these aren't Roman guards, these are temple guards, are trying to secure Jesus and disciples are running, Peter pulls out his sword and goes to, to kill a guard. And one of the guard moves, his name is Malchus, and Malchus's ear gets cut with this sword. And I can't imagine that didn't feel too good. And so in this pain, blood everywhere, Malchus takes both of his hands and holds them over his ear while all the chaos and confusion is taking place. And suddenly he feels a hand on top of his two hands. And the pain leaves instantly. Jesus is led away in ropes, tied up. Malchus still has blood on his hands, but his ear's normal and the pain's gone. Jesus is ushered immediately from that scene into the house of Annas. Now, this tells us that this is a setup because this is the middle of the night. Annas is waiting for there to come. Now, Annas used to be the high priest. He's retired. But they brought him into the house of Annas because Annas is going to question his teaching. He wants to question Jesus on some of the things that he's been taught. And Jesus knows that this informal interrogation is really kind of what we would call a perjury trap. And that they want to get him to say things that uh, he shouldn't say. And Jesus stands silent. And finally he says, look at everybody else. Everybody in the room hears you. Everybody hears what you're saying. And one of the, the temple guards is so upset with Jesus' disrespect for Annas, he punches him in the face. Annas says, take him to Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas is the high priest which means Caiaphas is the supreme judge, and he sits at the head of the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas is also Annas' son-in-law. So it's, there's kind of a family tie here. And so Jesus is brought in front, in, into Caiaphas. He's brought into to his house. It's, it's sunrise, and um, Caiaphas starts the, the, the trial immediately. But in order to have the trial, he has to have the jury, and that's the Sanhedrin. So he's got to send somebody to wake all these guys up to get them and bring them in. Plus, you have to have accusers. So he has to get witnesses and bring them into the house well. So, so he has all these sleepy witnesses, these sleepy jurists in his house. The witnesses begin to give accounts, and none of the accounts are the same. 
And so there's a problem. All the sleepy-eyed Sanhedrin are standing around. Caiaphas is frustrated. And finally, he says, enough. He turns to Jesus, and he says these words. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, and I was talking about oaths and vows, that one of the things, part of Jewish custom, Jewish law says that if someone asks you to answer a question in the name of God, you cannot refuse. So Jesus had been silent up to this moment, but Caiaphas, being the high priest, asking Jesus in front of the jury, in front of the witnesses, to make a statement in the name of God, Jesus has to respond. And Jesus knows this, this is the beginning of the end. In John it says, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So, Father, you be glorified. So now, he's charged in the name of God to speak, and Jesus says, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas is infuriated, and he puts on this big show, this, this, this religious uh, political theory. He rips his robe. The interesting thing is, if you read Leviticus 6 and Leviticus 23, when God sets the standards for the high priest and he describes the robe, one of the things it says in the law is the high priest cannot rip his robe. I guess ripping your clothes is a common thing to do, but the high priest wasn't allowed to. He does it anyway, just for this political theater. He rips it, and he says this with his mouth. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves from his own lips. So now the sun's starting to come up, and there's, <clears throat> there's, there's three different things going on that affect this story in Jerusalem. Judas is swinging from his belt. He's hung himself. Peter is hiding. He's, he's hiding because he is guilty. He's ashamed. Uh, he's upset because he has betrayed Jesus. Jesus is walking out of this trial. His face is bloodied. He's beat up. And they have also issued its verdict. Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. And they have also issued the verdict. I mean, issued the, the sentence. Death. But there's a problem. In the Roman Empire, Jews are not allowed to execute people. Only Rome can execute people. So they have to take this story to a new setting. They have to get the Roman Empire to agree to crucify Jesus, to agree to this offense of blasphemy in order to fulfill their scheme. And so they immediately go to Pilate's house. Now, this is early in the morning. I'm sure Pilate is not in the best of moods to be awoken, but he's also not in a good mood because he doesn't like the Jews, and they're in his living room. And they've brought Jesus all beat up and bloody. And he kind of senses something's not quite right. So he takes Jesus to the side and has a private conversation with Jesus. And he turns to Caiaphas and all of the Sanhedrin. And he says, I don't find anything wrong with this man. So I'm, I'm not, there's nothing for me to do. And, and so at this moment, um, a political game of what I would call chess begins. 
So Pilate's about to make the first move on this chessboard, and, and this chess game is Pilate and the Sanhedrin going back and forth, and they both think they're kings. They both think they have all the power, and neither one realizes that in this chess game, they're really pawns. Because the creator of the universe, the king of kings, has the Sanhedrin, has Pilate, and even has Satan right where he wants them. So, Pilate says this, this man is a Galilean. He falls under Antipas's jurisdiction. Take him over to Herod. So they take Jesus to Herod. Gets to Herod's place, and Herod has heard all these stories about Jesus, all his miracles and everything. So Herod is anticipating a show. He wants to see some miracles. He wants to see Jesus put on something for him. And Jesus not only doesn't give a show, Jesus doesn't say a word. He's totally silent. And Herod is disappointed, and he blocks Pilate's move, and he sends Jesus back to Pilate. So now Pilate has to make another move. He turns to Caiaphas and, and to the, the jury of the Sanhedrin. He says, today is the day where I pardon Passover prisoners. I pardon one prisoner for you, so today I'm going to pardon Jesus. And they said, no, we don't, we don't want Jesus pardoned. Our, because Barabbas is a murderer and he's a thief. And he can't for the life of himself figure why, why do they want to set free a murderer and a thief and they want me to execute this little peasant prophet. I, I don't get it. And so now they block that move. So he says, he takes a third move. He says, okay, let's take him out and let's flog him. Let's punish him for what he's done, for the uproars that he's caused. So he takes him to the outer court and with a cat of <clears throat> nine tails, they give him 39 lashes. His back is bloodied, torn apart. He's certain that this torture will fulfill the bloodlust of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and that'll satisfy what they want. He's been punished, and everything can go on. But they say no. He's made himself to be God, so he has to die. So now the Sanhedrin put Pilate in check. So Pilate tries one more thing. He just tries to reason with him. He says, look it, guys. I don't want to kill an innocent man. I, I don't want this on me. You guys don't want this on you. Come on, let's, let's just let him go. We've punished him enough. And they turn to him and they say this. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The council has Pilate cornered. In fact, the council now says checkmate. Because if Pilate doesn't crucify Jesus, they will tell Caesar that he let a man go who declared himself to be king. And they would see that as challenging Caesar's authority. Because in the Roman Empire, Caesar was not just king. Caesar was God. And so, while the Sanhedrin think they have Pilate in checkmate, God, the master chess player, has them all in checkmate. 
he's taking this, these fallen Jews, these fallen Gentiles, these spiritual powers of wickedness in heavenly places, as Paul describes them, and unwittingly they have collaborated together to execute the only innocent death that could possibly give life to the guilty. So God declares, checkmate. So now Jesus is marched out of this Pilate's house, out of the praetorium. He's beaten. He's bloody. The Roman soldiers have been brutal to him. As you read through scriptures, they not only whipped him with a cat of nine tails. You know they made a crown of thorns. You've heard about Judean thorns. On, they're about an inch and a half long. And so this crown, when they put it on his brow, it says they beat with sticks, they beat down this crown so those thorns went into his head. It says that he was known as a prophet, so they blindfolded him, and they took turns punching him in the face and say, okay, prophet, tell us who just hit you. And then it says they also ripped his beard out. I don't know what it is with, with babies, but if you have hair on your face, the first thing they go for is the beard. And it hurts when they yank on your beard. I can't imagine them pulling until it comes out. So as you listen to the description, it's pretty certain to me that Jesus is almost disfigured beyond recognition. And so they bring him out. He's been up all night. He's been beaten all night in every way possible. He's been interrogated. Golgotha is 1,700 feet away from the gate where he exits. It's not that far. It's about a third of a mile. Jesus is so weak, he can't carry a 40-pound timber on his shoulder, which is the crossbeam of the, of the cross. So as he stumbles, the crossbeam for Jesus, Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd, and they enlist him to carry the crossbeam for Jesus. 25 minutes later, Jesus is hanging above the earth in agony in one of the cruelest instruments of torture ever created because the crucifixion is not to kill you by bleeding to death. Crucifixion is to kill you by suffocation. And so as you hang, your lungs fall down, and you have to push up off of your feet to try and catch your breath. Pretty soon you become too weak. And by the time, because these were Jews that were being killed, the next day when the sun goes down, remember the day begins, these guys have to die before sundown because it's the Sabbath. And you can't kill people, and you can't have dead people hanging on the cross on the Sabbath. So they have to make sure that these guys are dead. And so when they go to the two thieves, they're still alive. They're still breaking. They breathing. They break their legs. They take a large mallet, and they just beat on their legs until they break so they can push up to breathe anymore. So... And they put a sign above Jesus' head. It says, and it's in Aramaic, it's in Latin, and it's in Greek, and it says, King of the Jews. And while that's there, it says the people around him, as well as one thief on his side, we don't know which one, they mock him and they gawk at him and they make all kinds of accusations. They say, if you really are the Son of God, if you're really a king, just take yourself off the cross. Come on, come down. Not realizing this. If this king comes down off the cross, their only hope for eternal relationship with God will be gone. He's not going to come down. And so Jesus hangs there. And in that hanging there, as they're doing that, he pushes up with what strength he has, and he musters out one of his seven sayings from the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. 
soldiers are gambling for the garment they took off of him. The other thief recognizes Jesus as Messiah. He has revelation while hanging on the cross and dying because he turns to Jesus and asks him to remember him this day in paradise. Jesus' first convert is on the cross, and there will be millions that follow. It's mid-afternoon. If you know the story, something like a solar eclipse takes place in that the sun turns dark, and everybody in Jerusalem is freaking out. There's, there's chaos everywhere. But here's what's happened. More than the thorns, more than the nails, more than everything that's gone on, this is the moment where the wrath of God is going to be poured upon Jesus. This is the darkest moment of Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus goes from being the blessed one to the cursed one because he's become sin for us. And at that moment, he screams out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the relationship with Jesus and the Father changes at that moment. Up until that moment, he said, Father, forgive them. There was a father-son relationship. The intimacy between a father and a son was there. But now, Jesus being fully man, suffering the impact of your sin and my sin, says, not my Father, why have you forsaken me, but my God. Because God is the judge of sin. God is the only one who can execute wrath upon sin. And at that moment, Jesus became fully man, and the full impact of every sin you have ever done or ever will do was placed upon him. And God's wrath was displayed, and at that moment, the one who has been by his Father's side for all creation, that fellowship is broken because the Father turns his back on the Son. Shortly after three o'clock, after he's bore the weight of the curse of his father, Jesus pushes up on his feet for the last times and ushers the last words he will ever speak before the resurrection. He says, it is finished. He wasn't talking about his physical life. He was talking about the payment for your sin and my sin had been completed. Jesus was fully conscious. Jesus was fully aware when the Father broke fellowship with him and put his wrath upon him for your sin and my sin. And we will never know what that feels like. We will never know what Jesus experienced at that moment because we have accepted the work of the cross. Those who refuse it will come to a day when they will experience everything Jesus experienced at that moment because God's wrath is demonstrated towards sinners. But his love is demonstrated to those who were while they were yet sinners. Christ died for them and they received salvation. To make sure Jesus is dead just before they break his legs and it's to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah where it says not one bone in his body will be broken. They see he's not breathing so instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers takes a spear and rams it into his side to see if he's dead. And they do that because if he's bled out and he's truly dead, all the liquid starts to come out of your body. And so water begins to flow out. And so it confirms the death of Jesus. 
So it was the worst and it was the best of all human deaths. And he bore our sin. And this is how Peter in 1 Peter 3 describes it. He says, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. All of that is called Good Friday. And it was Good Friday for us because of the goodness of God. Because when we say God is good all the time and all the time God is good, we think of that in the context of goodness. But during the midst of suffering, experiencing, listening, watching this, knowing what Jesus went through, we can still look at Jesus and say, God is good. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, God, it's good. God, it's good. But our faith does not stand on the death of Jesus. We are not saved because Jesus died. We're saved because Jesus rose from the dead. So really, our celebration, we are resurrection people. Now, of course, there could be no resurrection if there wasn't any death. So you have to have the death before you have the resurrection. But if Jesus had just died and had just gone to the grave and never resurrected, it was just one gory, awesome, painful day, and that was it. But Jesus did rise from the dead. The birth of the church depends upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was what motivated the disciples to preach. That what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost was the resurrection from the dead. And based upon all the claims that Jesus made about his resurrection, our identity is found in the fact that Jesus is alive. Here's what it says in John chapter 2. This is Jesus speaking way before he is crucified. So that the Jews answered and said to him, What sign will you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It took us 46 years to build this temple. And you say you can raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed. And the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. It's interesting. It says, after Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection, they believed. And Jesus appeared to them before his death. It didn't say on the day of the resurrection. It says when Jesus appeared to them, they remembered what Jesus said and they believed. No other religious leader has ever claimed, kill me and I will rise again. Or if they have, they're dead and we don't know about it. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Joseph Smith. None of them have ever made the claim, kill me and I'll rise again. So I want to just real quickly go over how the resurrection is cannot be disproved but can only be proved and so i just there's seven quick facts historical facts and i'm not going to go into all the detail but there's enough detail in the notes for you to understand number one when that stone was rolled in front of that tomb and was placed there a roman seal was placed upon it, it was the seal of caesar and that Roman seal was wax that was melted and pressed in, and then the, the, the king's or the Caesar's symbol was put into that. Plus, there were, there were soldiers that were set there to guard the stone to make sure nobody would roll away or nobody would come to harm the body. 
And so the FBI and the CIA of Rome were called in to find the people who were responsible. And we have the first Mueller report um, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ because the rest of Scripture says the Jews believe it was collusion amongst the disciples to create an illusion that Jesus had rose from the dead. And so, number one, that stone and that seal. Number two, it's a large stone. Listen to what it says in Matthew 27. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen and laid it in a new tomb, which had been hewn out of rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. So the sealed tomb, making it extremely difficult to steal a body. So those who approached the tomb would have noted the position of the stone and that the way that the tomb, according to history, the way the tomb was hewn out of rocks, in other words, they dug it out, the stone had to be rolled downhill to be put in front of the opening. The only, and then it stops. There's no other path. So the only way this two-ton stone can be moved is to be rolled uphill. And so um, it would have, when it, Scripture tells us that when they came and saw the tomb was empty, they said it was as if the stone had been picked up and lifted and put away. So how could the disciples have done that without the guards being aware that they came and moved this two-ton stone? Secondly, the entire Roman guard goes AWOL. They're not around. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So the Roman guard was a 16-man unit. So you got 16 guys with swords, with spears, who were trained to kill people. They are like the Navy SEALs of Rome. They're set there to guard that stone. They could not sit down and they could not lean against the stone. Very strict rules, and if they, if they fell asleep or they leaned against the stone or they did anything except standard attention during their guard, they were executed on the cross upside down. So there was a huge penalty for these soldiers if they failed in their duty. If just one member falls asleep, by the way, all 16 get executed. So you got to make sure your buddy stays awake. Starbucks wasn't around then, so I don't know what they did. But when that angel showed up and that stone rolled away, it says all of the soldiers scattered. They all disappeared. Now, it's interesting in the stone to the Sanhedrin, they run to cut. They don't disappear. They run to the Sanhedrin. They run to Caiaphas' house, which we'll talk about in a minute. So then... We get this empty tomb, verse 53, chapter 23 of Luke. Then he, Joseph of Marathia, took it down, wrapped it in linen, laid in the tomb, and went out of the rock where no one was ever lain before. So here's a key. Why was it important that Jesus was put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? Because tombs were hewn out for families. When Remember when Jesus calls Lazarus to come forth? Lazarus is in the family tomb, and Jesus in power, if he had just said, come forth, there had been a whole bunch of dead people coming out of that tomb. He had to call Lazarus by name. Lazarus, come forth. 
This tomb of Joseph of Arimathea had just been finished and there was no other dead body in there. Because if there had been, even with Jesus being resurrected, they could go in and say, there's still a body in the tomb. Jesus is not resurrected. So the fact that it was a new tomb and the fact that it is now empty is an obvious truth to the resurrection. The disciples went back to Jerusalem. These guys that ran away when temple guards showed up go back to Jerusalem in front of Roman guards, and they begin to proclaim not that Jesus is dead. They begin to proclaim that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. The thing that motivates these scaredy cats to preach is the resurrection. Without the resurrection, they have no impetus to preach. With no empty tomb, there's no resurrection, and it could be disputed in one minute. And here's the thing. If, if they wanted to, to quash the, the myth that the start of Christianity, they would need Jesus' body. The Sanhedrin never produced a fake body. They never brought a body in and said, this is Jesus. And, and here's the important thing to remember. The enemies of Christ have never, ever disputed the empty tomb. There is no writing in history. Not one historian, not one religious leader has ever written that the tomb was not empty and that there was a body in it. Every historical writing, pro-Jesus, con-Jesus, has affirmed that the body was gone and the tomb was indeed completely empty. There's nothing found in any type of literary writings. It is fully conceded by the enemies of Jesus. So, because the body's gone, the only thing they can do is they have to come with counter-resurrection theories. In other words, yes, the body's gone, but now they come up with these theories of what happened to the body. And some of these theories are still argued today. Um, the first one is that Roman or Jewish authorities stole the body. Now, if you think about that one for a moment, why would they steal a body that would prove the resurrection? And why are they going to do that? Producing Jesus' dead body would have ended all the contention. If they had stolen his body, they could shut everybody up and said, okay, yeah, we took it out. Here it is. Here's Jesus. Second thing is the disciples stole Jesus' body. In fact, remember I said that the guards, they didn't scatter. They ran to the house of Caiaphas. And listen to what happens. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together. So these are all the guys that pronounced the death penalty on Jesus. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money and said, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while you were asleep. Now, then they said this. Now, if this story gets to the governor's ears, we'll appease him and make an excuse for you. So they took the money, did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So these guys who, it was death to fall asleep. It was death to let anybody even move that stone. 
they were supposed to tell everybody that these 11 weaklings who ran away, who were scared to death of, Roman, of, of temple guards, little Roman guards, came, and while they were asleep, they quietly rolled the stone, they quietly went in and got the body and took him out and carried him away, and they nicely folded the napkin that was over his face and laid it at the foot of where the body was laid. Plus, just a few hours before, these guys were not willing to risk their lives for Jesus. They ran away. They ran away from temple guards. Why would they risk their life and go against Roman guards and try and steal the body of Jesus? Argument number three, Jesus didn't actually die. He only fainted. The theory holds that while appearing to die, Jesus fainted and the coolness of the tomb revived him. Here's the problem. Um, it's clear Jesus is dead. No one could survive those injuries. No one could survive that spear being thrust in their side. And if he wasn't dead, the guards would have broken his legs. So this is what would have had to happen if Jesus fainted. He would have to wake up. He would have to unwrap himself. Now, they just didn't lay a blanket over him. They wrapped him up tight. He would have to roll a two-tone stone away from the door uphill, and he would have to have fought all those Roman soldiers. He would have had to have walked several miles on the road to Emmaus with two disciples while hiding that he actually didn't die. Didn't work. Not true. Theory number four is that it was just a hallucination, that the disciples were just all hallucinating. Here's the problem with hallucinations. Hallucinations are individual. We could all sit around and have a, a happy party and take or smoke or do whatever it is that makes you happy, and we could all have hallucinations. But if we wrote down our hallucination, we would all have a different hallucination. Eleven guys don't have the same hallucination they don't go tell everybody, and then everybody starts going around telling that Jesus has risen from the dead because of a hallucination. It doesn't happen that way. Jesus showed up unannounced and suddenly. It wasn't a hallucination. The grave clothes tell a big tale in that it says this, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together and placed by itself. So the tomb is totally empty. Now here's what you have to understand. When, when you're wrapped up, first of all, they don't just lay a sheet over you and tuck it in. They wrap you in linen strips. So he's wrapped like a cocoon. Then what they do, because they don't embalm them, bodies smell as they rot, they make up this, this mixture of spices that weighs 100 pounds, and they take these spices and they pour it all over the body, all over the linen. And then it hards and, and becomes crust-like and becomes like a cocoon. And so, and that's what's wrapped around Jesus' body. Nobody could go in, because the only thing that's not wrapped is his head. Nobody could come in and pull him out of that cocoon. You'd have to cut it from the bottom to the top and split it open and lift thing in the shape when they walk into the tomb 
There's this thing in the shape of Jesus laying there. There's a handkerchief that was on his face folded up and put there, and there's no body. It would have been, a, been impossible. And, and here's the interesting thing. In Jewish custom, there was a master and a slave. When a master sat down to the table to eat, he had a napkin. What the master had to get up from the table for any reason, if he just put the napkin down, like he just wiped his mouth and laid it down, got it from the table, that told the servants, he's done. But if the master folded the napkin and set it down at his placemat, that means I'm coming back. Jesus, as the master, folded his napkin and placed it at the foot. Jesus was saying, I'm coming back. Finally, it's the changed lives of the apostles. Scripture shows the disciples were in disillusionment when the resurrection occurred. They didn't understand the prophecies of Jesus. They were a mess. They were dealing with the Judas stuff. They were just reeling from everything. But something happened two days after the resurrection. By the way, nothing happened on Saturday because it's the Sabbath. They can't do anything on Saturday. So from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, nobody can do anything. After sundown, I think guys started to get their fishing nets ready. Girls started putting herbs together or spices together because they were going to go to the tomb and, and, and help Jesus. But Peter, who went from denying, even cussing at a little girl, saying, I don't know Jesus, within days is standing on the balcony of a house preaching to all of Jerusalem that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's, he's not, that's his message. His whole story is about the resurrection. This man, Jesus, whom you crucified, has been raised from the dead. That was the heart of their message. James and John and Simon had returned to go fishing. Matthew had returned to collecting taxes. They all had moved in denial, but suddenly they stopped doing what they were doing right after Jesus died, and they all spent the rest of their life proclaiming the gospel, and every one of them but John was martyred for this message of the resurrection. Which, by the way, if when we go back to um, you know the the... Jews stole the body. You know, in the Sanhedrin, there's Pharisees and there's Sadducees. Combined together, they make the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. So there's no way the Sadducees would let the Pharisees steal the body. Because there's no way the Sadducees would want anybody to believe in the resurrection. So that just quells that argument altogether. So even martyrdom. And... and Scholars admit they cannot explain what it was that allowed these men who were cowards one day to die brutal deaths another day for the sake of the gospel. So the resurrection is our day. It gives us a faith worth dying for. I was thinking this morning, as tragic as what happened in Sri Lanka was, these were people gathered together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Some of them, I don't know what kinds of churches they were. I don't know who the pastors were. But I'm going to tell you, Muslims don't get together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Buddhists don't get together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I have to believe that those, some of those who died today, maybe all of those who died today, are present with Christ 
because of the resurrection. So in the midst of sorrow, there is great joy. So what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with his amazing love? This is what Jesus says. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. What Jesus is saying is this. I didn't have to go to the cross. I didn't have to die. I could have at any moment come down off that cross. I could have at any moment said one word and killed all of them. But I chose to lay my life down for one reason and one reason alone. And that reason is love. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. If he can control when he came out of the grave, he certainly had control over when he went into the grave. And the resurrection of Jesus is evidence to us that he was free in choosing to lay down his life. So the resurrection of Christ is the testimony of freedom to us. Here's what Jesus said. I'm close with this verse. I missed it by five minutes. Sorry, folks. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits the sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. We have freedom because of the resurrection. We celebrate today because of truth. We should be, as the disciples, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. Every opportunity we get. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible plan you had and that you executed. This plan of amazing grace. That your son chose to take on skin forever. He is still, even though he's in a new body, he is still fully God and fully man. He chose to put on skin for us. He chose to endure every temptation that we will ever endure. He chose to endure suffering beyond what most of us will never know. And he did it all for one reason and one reason alone. First John uh, 3.10 says, and this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave himself as a propitiation or a payment for our sin. Jesus, we thank you for Good Friday, but we live because of Great Sunday. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for eternal life. And we thank you, God, that we have, still have the freedom to declare that he who is risen is coming again. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And it's hot in here again.